lawyers are generous. I, you know, I don't think everybody thinks that, but I, in my experience, it's true. When I called around, yeah, he got me this big ticket referral. But when I let all these lawyers, you know, I probably called 50 lawyers that had had some case against in the past you know, five, six years. And they sent me business and gave me tips and met me for lunch and told me, you know, the mistakes they'd made. And so it was informal. So, yeah, did I know them? Most of them, no, I didn't know them. I had a case against them. But their generosity combined with my willingness to pick up the phone kept me in business. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. In our ongoing series of the life of a lawyer, start to finish, we're exploring the experience of becoming and being an attorney, from applying to law schools through retirement, and everything in between. On our last episode in this series, we discussed reprogramming a lawyer's brain with Dr. Deborah Austin. On today's episode, we moved into the business of law. We'll discuss what goes into setting up a law firm, building a client base, and positioning yourself to become a partner with a successful book of business, and ultimately how to become successful in the practice of law or however you've chosen to use your law degree, as well as a few pitfalls on the way. Our guest today is attorney and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson from Anderson Dodson, PC. Christopher has authored numerous articles and speaks on a wide range of topics, including law firm management, the ethics of cloud computing, and the future of technology in law firms. Chris has over 19 years of experience as a practicing attorney as well. He's a former managing partner of a full-service law firm in Georgia, has served as in-house general counsel, and began his career as a New York City assistant district attorney. Chris is also the host of the Legal Talk Network's The Unbillable Hour, which now features the Community Table series. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Well, thank you. I really uh, appreciate the intro. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Christopher, I'm really curious before we get started in the unbillable hour. Tell us about what the community table series is. Yeah, so that's uh, something new we've added. The my consulting company is actually called Sunnyside Law, and um, we started about gosh a year and a half ago working with a bunch of law firms that were self helping online, and uh, we're about to do a group mastermind. And I suggested that. Uh, it might be a better idea to have that be facilitated. And so we started recording you know, 20, 30 law firms at a time asking questions for an hour to an hour and a half. And it was just an idea that we had that other people could benefit from listening to the problems. Because you know, one of the questions you would ask is like, okay, why do 20, like if they get a hot seat of three minutes, maybe four minutes, why would they stay on the whole time? And the answer is that you learn a lot more from other people's problems than you do from your own. And so we said, well, then there's a lot more people that could benefit from that if they actually could listen to it at their convenience. And that thus we gave birth to the community roundtable. That sounds like a great idea. Maybe something we should talk about during the show a little bit more. But yeah, let's get it. Let's talk about the business of law and what it is that started the beginning. You know, you're going to set up a law firm for the first time. What do you have to do? Yeah, because they teach so much about that in law school. Like you're totally prepared not. Right. Um, I I was not. So, and you know, I've been, um, I forget what number you said, but I've actually been 
licensed to practice law for 26 years. I did my first, like you said, I did my first six or so years um, working for prosecutor's offices in New York City um, and then in Georgia. And then, you know, I just said, hey, I'm going to go open a law firm. And I did. And I had no idea what I was doing (laughs) because, you know, even the idea that it's a business hadn't really been taught, right? So, you know, it's a practice, it's a calling, it's a noble profession, and it's all of those things. But it's also a business. And yeah, just I had no idea. The, the, the only blessing I had was that um, I had been told to get Jay Foonberg's book, and I read it. And that helped a lot, um, because at least I like wasn't in there with a totally blank slate. I had some idea of some things to do. And then, of course, I did get a couple of mentors, and that was really important. Well, give us the skinny, what it is that you rent space, hire staff, hire attorneys, get computers and printers and uh, yeah. So what I did is I had 20, I had saved up $20,000 and this is 2004. So it's not that long ago that I went into private practice. I had $20,000 and I said, you know, if I run out of this $20,000, I'm done. I'm going to go back to public service. So yeah, I rented a office from another law firm. Um, so I just said, you know, I, I'm going to practice something you don't. So let me rent an office here and use your front desk. and I'll pay you uh, a fraction of the front desk fee. And I hired one paralegal for myself because I did know, at least I knew enough that I shouldn't do it all myself. And then I picked up the phone and started calling every lawyer that had defended cases um, against the, that I had prosecuted and let them know I was in business for myself and would really appreciate referrals. Um, and uh, you know that's how I got started. And I won't name names, but the grandson of a former governor of the state of Georgia was, was a colleague and sent me my first serious case the first month. And so I went in the black the first month with a $10,000 retainer. And it was just, it was all good from there, but boy, did I make a lot of mistakes along the way. So part of it is who you know. It's, you know, no, I don't think that's true. Um, you know, yeah, I got that retainer from that one person, but it was my will. It, it's, you gotta, you gotta do what's not comfortable. You gotta pick up the phone and call people and just let them know, like lawyers are generous. Like, you know, I don't think everybody thinks that, but I, in my experience it's true. When I called around it, yeah, he got me this big ticket referral. But when I let all these lawyers, you know, I probably called 50 lawyers that had had some case against in the past you know, five, six years. And they sent me business and gave me tips and met me for lunch and told me, you know, the mistakes they'd made. And so it was informal. So yeah, did I know them? Most of them? No, I didn't know them. I had a case against them, but their generosity combined with my willingness to pick up the phone kept me in business. Do you do any ads or send out any flyers or anything like that? Send out the typical law firm announcement, you know, like it used to back in the day? Yeah, I did send out the Manila, you know, stock paper embossed card to everybody. Um, So I did do that. But other than that, no, Um, I it took me almost a year to hire a marketing company to help me with advertising. I don't know if I'm sure you remember, but, you know, back in the day, you in, in in my town in September, the yellow pages people would come around and then you'd have to decide how much you're going to spend on the yellow pages. And then that decision lived with you for a year until the next time around. So I did that, but I couldn't, you know, I didn't think I could afford much. I should have spent a lot more on that. 
at the time, I don't recommend anybody spend anything on that today. But at the time, I should have spent more on that. Um, but you know, I, I started the business by picking up the phone, and I think that's probably not a bad way to get started today. You know, zooming forward um, a bunch of years, my general philosophy that with what I work with law firms on is like certainly referrals if you can get them are great. If you need money, if you want to grow and get new clients, not from referrals, fast paid search is still the way to go. And God forbid you use that as your sole source for very long. Um, and then you should work on more organic search and more um, non-digital media. But so like those are the things that build wealth. Paid search builds money. If you need money fast, paid search is good. Then referrals, print, and non-digital media, and, uh, and, and organic search build wealth. What kind of time do you think is necessary to invest in, let's just call it internet marketing, compared to the organic marketing of going out and shaking hands and going to lunches and organizational meetings and bar functions and dinners and lunches and so forth? Yeah. So let me, so from time to time, I do an experiment so that I can say I know what I'm talking about because, you know, you always hear the old adage of those who know do and those who don't know teach. I don't want to be stuck in that. So from time to time, I do an experiment. My most recent experiment was I said, what would it take to launch a family law firm from zero to a million dollars in, in annual revenue? Um, we achieved it in 13 months with nothing. And this, and this with zero referrals because I went and did it in a state that I had no contacts, zero contacts. And we did it all with paid search. So like that's why I say that's what builds money. You can do it all with paid search, but my cost of acquisition is too high to be sustainable for a long time. The profit, the profit is too small, so we're now shifting that to other other inputs. So, but to answer your question, how much time? Um, my recommendation is zero or close to zero, because the last thing I wanted to do was become an expert in paid search. It's a full time job these days. Paid search changes so often. And what works today will stop working tomorrow, and you have to be on your toes, very nimble. So I hired a group as my outsourced paid search team, and that's made all the difference. And that's what I recommend anybody do. You get, get with a group that will manage your paid search for you and so that you can do what you do, which should be make rain. And you know, if you're just starting practicing law and not try to become also a search engine expert because if you're not spending 40 hours a week learning and doing paid search and search engine optimization and that sort of stuff, you got no business doing it as a, as a side hustle. For those of us who aren't as familiar with internet marketing, what is it that you mean by paid search? Great question, yeah. So to me, there's two, there's, you know, people search for law firms in a variety of ways. And so I like to divide it into organic search and paid search. So organic search is when your law firm comes up high in Google, when someone searches for, you know, in my case, family law firm or state planning law firm or personal injury firm or whatever, if you come up high, that is organic search. Whatever you're doing in, in your um, website, the fresh content that you have, the, the, the relevant content, the backlinks and all the other great stuff that cause Google to think you're a um, authoritative source, that is organic search. People looked for you and they found you. Paid search is all that other stuff that happens um, where you pay Google or Bing or Facebook 
or other Yahoo or other search engines to deliver your ads to people. Well, Christopher, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from one of our sponsors. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by lawyer and law firm consultant Christopher Anderson. We've been discussing the business of law. And right before the break, we were talking about internet searches and paid searches, but I want to whipsaw you a little bit here, Christopher, and let's talk about the mechanics of setting up a law firm, specifically dealing with a bank, IOLTA, uh, getting a checking account and establishing credit. And how, how does it work on the financial side? You know, you've got tax returns and accountants to deal with. What, what do you, what all has to happen on that, on that side? Yeah. So look, if we're taking this from the perspective of just getting started, Obviously, the first thing you need is two bank accounts. I think three. You need a, an operations account and you need an IOLTA account or, a, or whatever your state is, a trust account of some sort, cold half IOLTA. All, you know, they're called different things in different states. So that you, for A, you know, never put your money and client money in the same place. And let's just all be clear that I am not giving legal advice as to what good trust accounting is in your state. Check with your state bar. Um, but uh, you'll, you'll want to have that and you'll want to have an operations account. I also believe in having a an income account, what I call an income account, where, where new money comes in. So when you get a check, when you get um, a payment from a credit card processor, you should probably get a pro- credit card processor also. Um, it goes into the new money account and then you put it in the operations account or the trust account um, as needed so that uh, a if there are any back chargebacks or any problems with credit card they're not it's not coming out of trust ever and you can deal with it without it um, negatively affecting your active accounts and i suggest you do that with a small local bank that you know that gives a damn about local businesses and and to whom you are actually an important client um, I, I think that's in the beginning really, really important. First, there'll also be a source of referrals because the bank will be interested in your success. And down the line, you're not going to get a line of credit day one, right? If you're just starting out, unless you have a credit worthiness from something else. But uh, down the road, there'll be an excellent source of lending as you as you need cash and capital to grow. 
So you asked about bank accounts. What else did you ask about? I, I didn't keep track of the whole question. No, that was it. Setting up a relationship with a bank and how yeah. you, and the various bank accounts you have to have to function. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and you know, I I'm a big believer in profit first. If anybody, you know, when you're starting a business, if you haven't read the book Profit First by Mike Michalowicz, you should. Um, and he talks about actually setting up a profit account as well and a payroll account so that you're salting money away before it gets spent. Um, because you know, one of the you know, I, when I talk in the unbillable hour, I talk about there being three pillars of every law firm business. One of them we've you and I have already talked about, which is client acquisition. Got to do that marketing sales. Um, you've got to then perform the work that you promised, which is operations, which we haven't talked too much about. And then you have to deliver results for the owner. Right? That's the third pillar. Um, professional results. You know, we want to grow as a lawyer, be a good lawyer and personal results. Like, why am I investing my time in this business? And it's good to salt that profit away from the very beginning because that's, you know, that's why you own the business is, is to pay yourself back for the effort you put in. So then when do you set up retirement accounts, accounts and when do you need a financial advisor? When do you need an accountant? How do you engage all these other people in your, in your new firm? The good news is that they will make themselves known to you. Um, as soon as you know, as soon as you hang out a shingle and you're in business for a little while, they all come knocking. Generally speaking, um, my general philosophy is start salting away those profit dollars first. No need to have an investment account or retirement account unless you've got profits. So set up the business, follow the profit first methodology to be profitable and to have the discipline to be profitable. Once you've got profits, then you can worry about where to put them. Um, and that's where you should form a relationship. Um, and as I said, they'll come knocking um, with a good um, investment uh, advisor. I strongly recommend that you only do business with fee-based advisors and not commission-based advisors so that they're they are you pay them for their service, just like your clients pay you um, for your service. And you're not, you know, they're not recommending to you what pays the best commission. Right. Well, there's also the local, some local regulations, state regulations, though were law firms and even the state bar. What what's involved there? Well, gosh, that's yeah, that's where I get a little wiggly because yeah, you know, I can't possibly be up uh, on, on all fifty states, on all fifty states, right? Of course not. So every every state that I'm licensed in now um, has when you pass the bar makes you go through. Their ethics uh, course, you get your your, first, your ethics CLE is your first CLE for the state, and you should really pay attention. If and if it's been a while, do it when you open your firm. Go do it. Go take that CLE again. And and you know, even when I started this new experiment um, of the family law firm, I went back and took that CLE, and I learned some really important things that I didn't know. Like I changed the language that I was going to have in my fee agreements to be more in compliance with what the state was looking for in those fee agreements. So I strongly recommend like getting that CLE, talking to other lawyers in your jurisdiction. But you know, the most, the key things are obviously the trust account, which we talked about. You're making sure that you never commingle your money and clients' money, that you, you know, that you keep any unearned money in that trust account because um, it isn't your money, it's the client's money. And that you, you, you obey your, uh, duty to safekeeping of all those things. The other thing is your duty, and this one is one that like a lot of people aren't as clear on, but the duty of competence rule one, you know, includes now a rule of technology competence. And so you really need to be aware of the technologies that are necessary to 
meet all your other obligations um, and to treat your client's data and information um, in a way that is uh, in keeping with current state of, of technology. You know, you're not supposed to be able to be Fort Knox, but you should be able, you should be running in a, in a way that reasonably secures your and your client's information. Um, and that's to me really, really important. You know, I have a quick question to follow up that kind of varies off the topic a bit, but when you said technology, I've noticed that when I get an email from my health provider, I've got to access their system in order to read the message. When I get an email from a bank, I have to access their system and so on and so on and so on. I get emails from other lawyers and I send emails and I know that other lawyers are sending emails just straight flat out on the internet. With this change in technology and security and privacy, what concerns should lawyers have in terms of the way they communicate with their clients ethically? Are, are we required now to start shifting to the same style of email that our doctors and banks use? And again, I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to be careful about not um, advising anybody on what their state requires. Um, in my in my personal opinion is no. The, the 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 bar associations, from my knowledge, spoke about email a long time ago, and um, email is reasonably secure. But everybody should be aware that it's only reasonably secure. That actually, in the reality, for anybody that really wants your data, that email is open and. A given email, when I, Craig, if I send you an email, it might cross anywhere from three to nine to 13 servers on, between you and me. At any one of those servers, our email content is visible. So I do recommend, for instance, if you send attachments, that they should be encrypted. What my practice is and what I recommend is that people don't send documents by email anymore. I think that technology has gotten so good to be able to store documents in secure locations and encrypted locations like Box or Dropbox or SharePoint or any number of other ones that you should be sending links to those documents that are secured. Then also case management platforms like Clio, like my case, like others have secure portals where you can communicate with your client on a secure portal. And a lot of law firms are going to do something like that. I think that's the future. And I think people should consider more and more as our clients get used to it. Because, you know, 10 years ago, clients would have been like, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. I'd send me an email. And a lot of clients still are saying that. But the truth is, Craig, I just had three clients last week ask me to send them a fax. I had to go find a fax machine, right? You know, it's like, you know, eventually we have to say that technology's passed and there's new technology and po secure portals are where people really should be thinking today. All right. Thank you. Well, Christopher, we're going to take another break to hear a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back again to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, and joined by lawyer and law firm consultant Christopher Anderson, we've been discussing the business of law. You know, 
One of the things that we have a benefit of is your experience in big law or larger law firm. And you've made the transition to a solo firm and starting up your own. How was that experience? How can people learn from some of the mistakes you talked about in the very beginning? So, yeah, I want to be clear. I've, I've never worked um, as an attorney in a large law firm. The, the largest law firm I worked in was 435 lawyers in the New York City District Attorney's Office of Bronx County. That's um, pretty big. That, that was big. And I mean, but I'll tell you something. Um, I'll tell you a short story because I know we, time is short. But when I, when I started working there, there were no computers. This is, and this isn't like, oh, it was the 60s, right? This was 1996. No computers. Um, to get motions done, there was a motion book and you'd like fill out, it was like fill in the blank. Uh, you'd, you'd send it to the steno pool going, I need an E5 with a G6 and a T4 um, and put an L3 in there. And then it would come back to you all wrong. And then you'd handwrite your changes and go back three or four times. And I bought a computer and the DA came around, the elected district attorney came around and said, what's that on your desk? And I was like, it's a computer. He's like, where did you get it? Like I bought it because you have a stupid system. Um, I, by the way, I poke the bear. That's what I do. Um, but uh, he said, return it. And I was like, why? He said, because I'm buying you one. You're going to show me how we can, this will be better for everybody. So we did that. But so when I went to private practice from there, you know, I brought my experience. I, in law school, I worked for Apple Computer as my side job. Um, and computers have always been, the, the use of technology and applying it to law has always been something I've been fascinated by. So, you know, going into private practice, I brought with me all that knowledge and we, we really automated uh, my firm. And then I became a partner um, in a small firm um, and I automated that firm. And uh, you know, we're again talking in the, the early 2000s now. Ever since then, I've been a huge proponent of bringing technology to bear to make the law firm more efficient, to make our clients more efficient um, and to make communications um, more consistent and provable. Well, you've got, you've got us going uh, at a good pace here, running a practice of law. What about the mistakes you made in the beginning? <laughs> what, uh, what admissions are you willing to give? And, and uh, the show is two hours, right? Uh, you know, I think we have just about <laughs> six or so minutes left. <laughs> oh, good. Phew, we can't go very deep then, um, which is a good thing. What mistakes? Well, here's the, here's the best one. The best one. Beginning of practice. I told you I had $20,000. I got that $10,000 retainer, which was great. But I was getting a lot of other referrals from other law firms. So I was taking in business and doing the work. And about month three, I got a look at my bank account and it was getting dangerously low. And like I, w I went to uh, one of the mentors I talked about. I said, you know, I, I was so excited and now I'm really kind of worried because I said, if I run out of money, I'm not doing this. And he said, well, you know, when's the last, you know, what, what, when did you last send bills and have they come in yet? I was like, when did I do what? He's like, when did you send bills? I'm like, oh, bills. And what are you know, those? Yeah. And I knew about bills. I knew you should send them. But like, I just figured that since I was doing the work, people would start sending me money. And, you know, I didn't really think that, but it's just like, it didn't occur to me like bills had to go out on a regular basis. I'd been in public service for a long time. And, you know, sure enough, my clients were about as eager to pay my bills as I was to send them. And so I learned that lesson that bills need to go out. They need to go out regularly. And again, I'm going to refer to Jay Foomberg because his book taught me how to write a bill that clients will want to pay. Um, and it's very important to describe the work you did. Too many lawyers will be like drafted, edited, and submitted motion to dismiss or to, I don't know, compel discovery. And like the client does not give a rat's 
patoot about your motion to compel discovery. They don't care. What they care is what did that do for them? And so if I want to leave a word about like the big mistake I did is I didn't bill and my bills sucked until I got them better by describing instead of spending a lot of time telling them what I did, I started telling clients why and how it helped them. And that made all the difference. And the money started coming in better and my accounts receivable went down. And if I have time for a second mistake, it would be that would be allowing for accounts receivable. And if I have time for a rant, I'll tell you it. But accounts receivable are cancer on a law firm and you mustn't tolerate them at all. Yeah. Call the bottom 20% of your clients. Yeah. Or more. I mean, I've gone into, as a consultant, I've gone into law firms that have accounts. They think they have accounts receivable that are close to 100% of it, a year's worth of revenue. That's how much they allow to build up. Now, of course, it's not really accounts receivable because a lot of it's just dead, dead money. It's gone. It's never, never, it's uncollectible, but they've got a fantasy that if they keep it on the books, that maybe one day, you know, the, the fairies of account receivable accounts receivable will come and bring them the money. Um, but, you know, after 60 days, the money's gone. Um, so you need to, you know, you need to have retainers. You need to make them evergreen. You need to make sure that you're working on money you've already got in the bank in the trust account so that when you bill, you collect from yourself and then you get the client to replenish it um, because accounts receivable will kill your law firm business um, in about 17 different ways that I don't have time to go into now, but it's, it's bad. It's fairly deadly. Well, Christopher, it's just about time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts. And I'd like to, in particular, have you tease your community tale series. Talk about, in particular, what it is you're hearing on the street. Yeah, so I, I mean, I'd love to tease just the unbillable hour in general. Like the community table is good, and it's a part of the unbillable hour. But the in the you know that's answering lawyers' questions, so you can you, you can really get a thumb uh, a, a pulse on on what's going on. But I also bring guests to the unbillable hour to speak about these areas of of law firm business every month, um, and we really go deep on some important stuff. Um, this month. I've got a great um, guest that talked about you know bringing about the mistakes he made building his law firm from zero to uh, a thirty person firm and then almost losing it to a fire and then building it into a one hundred and fifty person firm. But what I'm hearing right now is you know one, the big one is talent is really hard to find, um, particularly among lawyers. It was across the board, but paralegal hiring and admin admin help hiring has gotten better. Lawyer hiring is still very, very difficult. And um, we all must be diligent about performing good law firm hiring searches. Um, I recommend a book called Who by Aaron Street. But whatever you do, um, do that well or hire somebody else to do it. I do. I outsource my recruiting. I make the final decisions because, again, just like with paid search, I'm not an expert and I don't have the time to do a great job. So I hire people who do. Um, and, uh, and that's, I think that's, that's the thing I'm hearing on the street right now is the biggest challenge is talent. Great. Well, Christopher, if our listeners want to reach out to you to learn more, how can they get in contact with you and where can they find the unbillable hour? The unbillable hour, by the way, is here on the legal talk network. And, uh, you can just check the show notes for links to the unbillable hour. So that's easy. Um, if you want to learn anything about me or go deeper on any of these topics, uh, you can feel free to email me at Christopher at sunnysidelaw.com. Or go to sunnysidelaw.com website and there's a form you can fill in there or there's videos and stuff you can learn more about us. And always happy to answer questions. And if you want to join um, the the Ask Me Anything show, the Community Roundtable, just go to, again, go to the show notes um, and uh, 
go to Unbillable Hour and all everything you need to know about how to get on the show will be right there. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, as we wrap up, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank our guest, Christopher Anderson, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. And it's been my pleasure being here. Thanks so much. Some of the points that Christopher made are extremely important and critical to your success in starting up a solo practice. Uh, he's done it. I've done it. Uh, we started roughly about the same time, and I cannot emphasize the importance of the role of technology in your business. From the beginning of my law firm, we started paperless, scanning all of our documents and dealing with everything on our servers. Now we've moved into the cloud, a subject we didn't dive into deep enough today, but cloud services are the future of the law. And as Christopher pointed out, so is email security. So that can be accomplished through cloud services. Can't emphasize enough the importance of listening to Christopher's podcast, The Unbillable Hour. You're going to learn a significant amount of the business of law if you want to jump into that arena. Well, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at thelegaltalknetwork.com where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.